This is the Untold Civil War Podcast, and before we get started, I gotta announce that we have a brand new sponsor that I know you guys are really gonna love. I know you guys are lovers of history just like me, but finding good history programs to stream is rough. Like me, you've probably watched the only five good history programs on Amazon Prime multiple times at this point. The solution? History Fix. History Fix, brought to you by the man behind Civil War Digital Digest, is a streaming service that will allow you to enjoy history. Whether it's a movie, short film, documentary, or just a site visit, you'll find something to get away for a little bit. You'll be able to explore stories of the Middle Ages to early 21st century. You'll enjoy historical content always ad-free, and you can get 7-day free trial as you explore the site. Be sure to check them out on Fridays particularly because that is when new content is uploaded. The link will be in the bio. And now, places, curtain, and for this magical episode, let's pull some untold Civil War out of our hat. Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast. Today I sit with author Mark Cannon, who has written the book Lincoln Scout, The Diary of Horatio Cook, Soldier, Spy, Escape Artist. Now, not only has Mark Cannon served 36 years in law enforcement, but he himself is an escape artist. So it is awesome to have you on the show and thank you for coming on. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. So you've had a very interesting career. Uh, can we talk about your career and how that led you to the point of writing this book? Well, sure. Um, you know, yes, I did do 36 years in law enforcement, but well before that time, and in fact, as a kid, I got started in magic. And then soon after that, escape artistry as an adjunct to that from the age of nine, actually. And uh, it would eventually lead to me performing as a professional magician, escape artist on cruise ships and at the Magic Castle in Hollywood, uh, television, et cetera. But it was in that context uh, when I was still 20 years old, which not to date me, but that'll, when I was 20 in 1981, and uh, I hadn't yet been booked on my first cruise ship. That would, in fact, happen uh, about middle of, of 1982. But just a few months before that time, I was doing shows like I typically did, parties, uh, you know, uh, at hotels for people's having Christmas parties, that kind of thing. And it was in that context that I got a short call just a couple of days prior to see if I could do a Christmas magic show for what is really an elderly uh, community uh, housing park. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I could never really say no. So I, so I and I needed the money. So I, uh, I think it was December 13th, 1981. 20 years old, and I do this magic show and escape, the straitjacket escape, at this little place in the little town where I live, Yucaipa, California. So I'm doing this show for these elderly people. It's kind of a routine show. And as I get to my big climax then, which was the straitjacket escape, I, I'm asking for a volunteer. Typically, you want a big burly guy to come up and really use his strength to tie you in, you know. And at this point, I get the oldest person in the audience, <laughs> this little old lady, you know, she must, she couldn't have weighed 110 pounds at the most, maybe 100 pounds. And she was about 85 or 86 at the time. And she just had to volunteer for this trick. And I'm like, oh, boy, this is going to go great. Well, anyway, I, I bring her up and I'll just say right here and now, she quickly took over my show, <laughs> which you shouldn't let happen as a performer, but she took over the show in this way. She said, young man, 
uh, you better be good because the last time I helped a magician, it was for the great Houdini, you know, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, right, here we go, here we go. And then she goes further and says, and by the way, I was my dad's assistant, you know, the, the great Professor Cook, you know, the, the oldest and greatest magician of his time who taught Houdini what he knew. And I think now nah, she's really, you know, off the deep edge here. But she started saying little things about Houdini. And I'd kind of heard of her dad too, but I, from one article I had read when I was just a kid, myself 10 years prior to that. So some of it made sense. She knew some really specific criteria about Houdini that the typical person would not know. And I started to begin to believe this woman. Anyway, I get to the show somehow. <laughs> Show's over. And she asked if she could go back to her house. This was a park where there was like a theater in the begin in the middle of all these houses. She goes back and she wants to show me some stuff. She pulls out a shoebox. And in that shoebox is the beginning of where we are here today, 40 years later. She would show me her dad's scrapbook, his personal diary, these various items he made, all these things that were absolutely amazing. The Houdini connection was wonderful. That was great. But much more than that was when she mentioned how her dad had been a spy appointed by Abraham Lincoln and in fact later was present for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, this stuff you could not make up. It's, it's one thing to hear it, but it's another thing to start looking into these scrapbooks and diaries and seeing all this physical evidence. And, and then I realized, oh my God. And then here was the thing that really struck me. I was talking to a woman, this is 1981. I was talking to a woman whose dad, not her grandpa, not her great grandpa, whose father had fought in the Civil War and had been personally commissioned a chief of this unknown entity called the Lincoln Scouts of 1863, little medal to go with it on his chest. And he was a, a functioning as a scout or secret agent, so to speak, within the capacity of the Civil War. And her dad would then, like I say, see the assassination. I mean, I, I couldn't comprehend. I was talking to a woman whose own dad had been this person. Anyway, that's how this whole thing began. So and how does that go to eventually writing the book? I mean, did you stay in contact with her? How did that work out? Yes. Okay. So I was 20. She was about 85 or 80. I think she was 85 that year. Born in 1895. I had to do the math real quick. It's in my book, but I can't remember all these numbers. Here's what happened. I then became her friend. I was just in, enthralled with what this woman had to, to teach me. I'm also been a amateur historian of American history on top of things anyway, and the Houdini thing and the Civil War thing. So um, she only lived a few miles from me. So she invited me to come over the next day. She had some more articles to show me, which was her personal scrapbook, which is separate than the scrapbook that mostly makes up this book, uh, and just tell me the story. So her name was Clara Louise Wasson. And as I would come to find out, and, and to answer your question this way, she was the only remaining survivor of the Horatio King, or Horatio Cook, or Harry Cook, as he went by, uh, family name. She had had a son named Donald, but Donald had died in World War II. Now, so what had happened was this. She came to possess all of her dad's um, things, his scrapbook, his diary, this padlock that, that he had made for Harry Houdini himself, but was never able to give to Houdini, all of these things. And the intention was it would go from her to her son. But when her son died, 
I think what happened was this woman realized when she had met me, here she is 85 years old. She has no surviving children. She's got this wonderful story of her dad. And I think she's just basically realizing if she doesn't have somebody to pass this treasure trove of not just the stuff, but the story behind it onto someone that this story would, would absolutely be lost forever. And what she did was specifically this. After a few weeks of meeting her and interviewing her almost every day, um, she came to the point where she just outright gave me, which is incredible to say this, but she did. She just gave me her dad's scrapbook, which itself had several signed letters in it from Harry Houdini, the magician, a, a first edition book from Harry Houdini presented autographed to her dad, a padlock that her dad had made with the intention of giving back to Houdini, but he himself would die before he could do that. And, and on and on and on, all these saying posters of his, his magic and spiritualist debunking show that Harry Cook toured with after the Civil War. And the idea was this. She said, you can keep all this stuff. I just have one important request, and that is for you to please publish my dad's story in Reader's Digest magazine. Now, Reader's Digest magazine, you got to look at it in the context of her and her lifetime. That was kind of the main outlet for people to to get stories published. And, and I got it, you know, so, so what she did was she gave me most of the things, but there were a couple things she only showed me or lent me. The most vital of them all was her dad's diary, which is, is transcribed at the front of this book. And it's the only place in the world that you can find the entire transcription. There's bits and pieces out there that have been published elsewhere, but it's the only place. She didn't give me that. People have often asked me, well, where's that today? Well, I'll offer that up in a moment. But you got to, again, look at it from her perspective. How golden was that scrapbook to her as her dad's personal words? So whereas she gave me most of the things, she only lent me her dad's handwritten diary for purposes of me to transcribe it into typewritten print. Again, 1981, this is plain, plain old finger plinking typewriter that I put it into and to send it into Reader's Digest to hopefully be published. But I had to give the diary back and a few other things to tell you about. Well, quick to the chase on that point. I never claimed to be a writer, but I figured I can certainly transcribe this thing word for word, error for error, by the way. I made certain to, to not try to correct any typos in the diary because I might inadvertently change the contextual meaning of what he might have been trying to, to say. I wrote up the, the entire diary in type, TypeScript, sent it into Reader's Digest, exactly what she asked. And a couple months later, Reader's Digest gave me a polite form that basically told me to go pound sand. <laughs> you know? So I felt bad about it, but I really felt bad about it for Claire Louise's sake, because she was trying to get this thing published. You know, Now I'll take a time out and say this, looking back, I get it. When I sent Reader's Digest a transcribed diary, I sent nothing else with it. All of the things that you see in the book, which basically is bringing the entire scrapbook and the evidence to life. Well, none of that was, was um, part of what I sent to Reader's Digest. It was strictly the diary. So from their perspective, here comes this over-the-top diary out of left field from some unknown guy, me. You know, they, I guess they just rejected it outright, which is, which is okay in the long run. So the diary went back to her. And then let me say one other thing. She showed me several things, other photos of her dad with Harry Houdini, her dad with a magician named Harry Keller, who was very famous 
in the late 1800s, just ahead of Houdini's generation. Harry Keller was the guy that Frank L. Baum created the Wizard of Oz upon. He was a real magician that the Wizard of Oz was created, the fictitious wizard was based upon. Anyway, she sent me, I saw all these things. Those things are still with her personal effects, as is the diary, which I'll give you my speculation where it is today. And as is one more very important thing, especially on the Civil War, in her personal scrapbook, not the book that she, she, she gave me, where these other photos were at, among other things, was a beautiful, in, in very good condition, actual copy of the playbill from the play Our American Cousin at Ford Theater, dated April 14th, 1865. I held this in my hand. I mean, even then I realized as a 20-year-old guy, that, oh my God, this is, this is historic, what I'm holding here, you know? And as the story went on that, and not to get ahead of the story, but on that topic, her dad had had the wherewithal that night. He realized as himself a young man, himself being 20 years old in 18, or 21 years old in 1865, he realized, man, this was a historic thing to happen. And he had the wherewithal to peel off one of those programs and put it in his pocket. And he would keep it throughout his entire life. It went to his, and to his daughter. I skipped ahead on that little bit of the story because I'll get right to the point. What became of those things? The most significant, the diary. The diary, incidentally, was about six or seven inches tall. It was about maybe five inches wide. It was like a leather-bound, hand-stitched uh, kind of a thing. And with beautiful Spencerian ink and quill uh, script. It was just This guy's handwriting was immaculate. And he wrote this entire story, which is reproduced in the book, of course. And that was the diary I had to hand back to her. Well, I'll just cut to the chase on this end. I would later get start working on cruise ships as a magician, not, not too long afterwards. Unfortunately, during my times away and trying to get on with my life, I would come back and Lara, Clara Louise had passed away. She passed away only 13 months after I first met her. Her husband, just one year later, neither one of them had children. What became of all of their stuff? I went over to the house and, you know, too long, too, too little, too late. Well, I tracked down through documents and I'll be a little bit circumspect here because I don't want the family to be inundated. Suffice it to say, it, you could tell in print by some of where the legal documents, her, his stuff, her husband, basically went to some friend of his. Her stuff, remember, she preceded him in death, went to a person in the family up in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't wanna to be too much more particular on that because I don't want them to be inundated by people trying to get in. But out of respect for the family, at least at that point, back in the early eighties, that's where it went. I will say one thing that's a little bit worrisome though on that topic, in that family, without getting too specific, those people have passed away since too. So the question is what became from there uh, forward, I don't have the answer to that. So that's, that's just, I do have uh, a, a family member that's been apprised of all this, and she's trying to do her best to see what she can find out. But uh, anyway, so that I just wanted to get that out of the way. No, absolutely. And a couple things there. First of all, amazing that you've been able to preserve this story, because as you can see, and as we can all learn from the story is that the history, sometimes it'll disappear. If it's not oh, yeah. in caretakers' hands, yeah. it'll definitely disappear. Um, definitely. And, and believe it or not, even in, if it's in a museum and an archive, sometimes it still disappears. Yeah. So it's very important to try to 
get these things in print, get them online, sure. get them copied so people have access like you have done. Uh, sure. The other thing is, and I have a little soft spot. My grandmother used to read the Reader's Digest, the uh, you know religious. Oh, okay. So <laughs> you know, yeah. hearing that, I, I can I can feel for that. I understand that. But we got to get into the meat and potatoes here because I know right, the audience right. is is right. eager for this. When did Cook enlist, and what was his early war experience like? Do we under uh, do we know that? And uh, we, we and do about his early life. Yes, uh, I'll zip through the part leading up to the war. He was born in Norwich, Connecticut. February 1st of 1844. It was only about 10 years later, his family, he was one of many kids. Uh, they moved out west in his era, west was Chicago. And uh, they were in Chicago for a short time. And then later they moved down to Marengo, Iowa, Marengo, Iowa. Now at the age of 17, this kid was obviously uh, like a child prodigy. He was a genius. If you just look at his script writing of which there's a sample in my book of one of his letters he wrote to his brother, the guy was brilliant. And where did this brilliance come from? He was basically a country bumpkin, you know? And at the age of 17, he was made the school teacher. He was made a teacher at a country school, kind of like Little House on the Prairie, right? You know, but he was just one of these Renaissance people. He could just, he just kind of did everything. And he was self-taught. He was a great uh, marksman with a rifle on his own right, but he was also this beautiful penmanship and for the most part pretty good spelling given the era now with that to begin with we'll we'll get right to the war now so the war breaks out in 1861 he is still 17 the following year at the age of 18 and there's two or three different dates that that crop up um, and what i mean what i mean by this is depending on exactly what you look at you can find the august 20th of 1862 is the date that I have on one of his actual signed documents enlisting in the army in Marengo, Iowa, with the 28th Iowa Regiment Company B. His brother Nathan also enlisted with him, and he writes in his own diary he brought eight of his students with him into the war as well. There's some other dates a month later where they moved to Helena, Arkansas, but but basically, that's the date we go with is uh, August 20th of 1862. It just as a private, enlisted as a private. And then in his diary, and a lot of documents also back this up, if you follow the 28th Regiment, real soon, he got the attention of his superior officers, basically because of his intellect and his ability to write. I can't say enough about how well he could write. Try to remember that in an era where, where schooling was pretty nominal, and you're out in the country in the Midwest there, generals needed people who could write to act as couriers and, and take their correspondence and take their general orders and then ride with their orders to this other general, you know, miles away. And it was in that context that Harry Cook began to make a name for himself with generals. I mean, the litany of generals that he would meet in his career, I mean, starting with... Um, a print gen, uh, General Prentice, and then later General Grant and Sherman, hope I don't leave any of these guys out, uh, Sheridan in a big way later on, and then I, oh, uh, General Banks. All these guys were people that he worked with and or did correspondence for. It's in that context that he would get known at executive headquarters back in Washington, D.C., because these letters are going across the country. And of course, Lincoln was you know, as you know, was always bringing his generals together, trying to 
strategize what the next step is. And somewhere along the line, uh, his letters made an imprint on somebody, you know, be, just because of the beautiful artsmanship of, of this, his lettering and his ability. And the fact that he also had this other knack of keeping his fellow troopers entertained with his magic and escape tricks, <laughs> which, which is a big connection to Lincoln in a minute. Of the many things this guy learned, he learned basic magic tricks and then the art of escapology, escape. Now, when I say that, that's a rather big statement because the art of escape didn't exist yet. It would be a whole generation later in the future with a guy named Harry Houdini that the art of escape would become a known thing that even existed in the world. But what was happening was spiritualism, people trying to, to contact the dead, especially during the Civil War and especially afterwards, because it's in times of great sorrow and people dying that people start grieving and looking for all kinds of things in life to get by in life. And spiritualism, his first big heyday was during the Civil War. I bring that up because a little bit getting ahead, but not so much. Cook would, would realize that these great manifestations of great performers like the Davenport brothers and others that were supposedly being tied up and then contacting the dead and making tambourines ring and all that. He realized, wait a minute, these guys have figured out a, out a way to get in and out of rope ties and escapes quickly, do their little tricks and carry on. And he would take that and create the art of escape. So realistically, Harry Cook should, and Harry and Houdini would give him credit much in the future, but Harry Cook really would become America's first escape artist. But back to the present of, of the Civil War, the first known printed article I found on Harry Cook doing any kind of a magic trick or an escape was as a trooper in the Civil War where he was AWOL, he got into trouble with his superior, probably his lieutenant. As punishment, they tied his thumbs together over a tree branch. And as the lieutenant started to walk away from him, quickly Cook escaped, made some kind of obnoxious uh, remark, <laughs> probably thumbing his nose or worse, to the lieutenant, probably for the enjoyment of his fellow uh, uh, privates, and then quickly put his thumbs back in. So that, that's the first thing I see where Cook starts getting an idea how to perform escape. And it was during and within the Civil War. So his, his first several uh, battles would be in the Western theater. You know, if you follow the 28th down, I also have his personal military records of which battles he partook in, partook in the Battle of Port Gibson under Grant, Champion Hill under Grant and Sherman, the Siege of Vicksburg, Grant and Sherman, and also the relief of the city of Jackson. Later on, as they went down to New Orleans, his military records calls it Bayou Burr, but then you look it up, it's Bayou Bourbeau, I think is how it said, or it's also called Carrion Crow Bayou, but either way you look at it, he took place in this battle down in Louisiana under Nathaniel Banks, and then he ultimately did the Red River Campaign. Now that those battles are significant because all of those put him into direct contact with all those generals. Why would he be in contact with them? Because this kid could write and he found himself doing correspondence work. Now, this is important. In his military records, his role, his role muster cards, you know, every two months, you know, you're present to your AWOL or whatever. He has several absent on detached service, absent on detached service. Well, what was he doing? on this absent on detached service. In one case, it appears he clerked for a general court-martial 
not of him. <laughs> he was the clerk doing clerk, clerk, clerk work. Again, using his penmanship, he was taking notes, I guess, uh, for a, a general court martial, which I haven't been able to identify who that was about. That was down in Louisiana. But at some point, suddenly now he's at, after the, the Western theater of the 28th infantry. And if you follow that regiment, they find themselves after the, the Western theater and then going to South in New Orleans, they end up on a boat and they go up to Fortress Monroe and then to DC all in preparation for what would become the Shenandoah Valley campaign of 1864 under Sheridan. But here's where things start getting really mysterious about Mr. Cook. Based on his military records, I tried to put this in, in record for today. A lot of these detachments have no explanation what he was, he was doing, but he was legally detached from service. And then later on, a couple of months later, he'd go, he'd go back and rejoin the 28th. The, fir the first detachment was July and August of 63. That was down to New Orleans. Then he went again down to New Orleans uh, later that, uh, in 64, in the beginning of 64. And that's all explained with the court-martial. But here's where it starts getting interesting. In April of 64, he gets detached for unspecified service. We don't know what he did then or where he went. Now, did he report back to his guys then? Because if he did, for some reason, all of the battles that they took part in after that, with the exception of Cedar Creek in a minute, all of the Western theater stuff is not lit. He is not given credit for being in those battles. He's given credit for being in those battles I read earlier, but he's not given credit for being in those in-between battles. Tells me he wasn't with them. He then, uh, uh, he comes back or not, we don't know. Did he meet Lincoln then? Don't know. I have a, a, a second speculation on when. His, his next one, this one's important. He has an absent, and then it says uh, more information. Absent, detached as brigadier orderly, August and September in 1864. On August 1st of 64, his regiment was in Washington, D.C. They had already sailed from New Orleans up and around to Monroe, then over. Now, then he has a second one that follows up the very next month in, in October. Absent, detached, brigadier, brigadier clerk, October 1864. And of course, the Battle of Cedar Creek, the big story of his life, would take place in Cedar Creek, Virginia, Shenandoah campaign, October 19th of 1864. So here's the big question. I, I know that you, you're, you're curious, and most people are curious, when did you first meet Lincoln? There are lots of news clippings that tell all about his meeting with Lincoln, what I deem to be his second meeting with Lincoln. And those are in the book, the, the actual reproduction of the newspaper clippings. In his second meeting, which is sometime by his own word near the very, just before the beginning of the Shenandoah campaign under Sheridan. Now, Sheridan gets in the picture in, in August of that year, 64, to take over that campaign. We know that at least, at least Cook was there August 1st in Washington, D.C. And at that time, there's lots of, of clippings that substantiate him going to D.C. to meet with Secretary of War Stanton and all these other guys. But there's one unfortunate twist in this that throws a curveball. I'll get that in a minute. He meets all these generals, Hancock, uh, Senator Ingersoll, and he says General Sherman. That can't be that time because Sherman was at this time marching through Georgia. So people, oh, see, he's lying. Man. He obviously worked many times under Sher Sherman back in the siege of Vicksburg. 
He's telling the story many years later. Did he mix up the name? I don't know. I, I have no explanation for that other than just a mistake. But he certainly at that time, what I speculate to be August of 64, performs a magic trip for, for President Lincoln. Lincoln was a big fan of magic. He had magicians over it as, in the world of magic, that's a well-known thing. He, had, he loved magic. He'd always have people there to perform for his kids, et cetera. So in this performance, Lincoln says, I understand that you're a tricky lad. Would you mind showing me something? And, and Cook is saying, not oh, tricky, like that I, I do something to get in trouble, you know? He's, he's 21 at the time. So he has uh, all these senators tie him up, tie Cook up with 50 feet of rope. And then he asked President Lincoln to turn around and take 10 paces away and then turn around and come back. And by the time President Lincoln took 10 steps and turned around and, and to come back, uh, Private Cook tossed him these ropes and he was out. It was at that time that President Lincoln gave him a $2 bill and said, here's something to remember Uncle Abe by. And also he made the prophetic statement that if he should ever fall captive to Johnny Reb, that he should teach Johnny Reb a thing or two, which would become a very prophetic statement a very short time later. Now, I know I'm answering your question backwards. That time, we know that he met Lincoln. Lots of articles about him. I think that's the second time he met Lincoln because of, A, what he says in his diary later about this letter that was given him in this spy entity, and secondly, that there was this unexplained detachment from his regiment just a short time earlier that year in April of 1864. I think there's a high probability that it was that meeting, maybe the second meeting, but I think in his first detachment of 1864, where there's no record of him rejoining his guys afterwards until the Shenandoah campaign, that he probably met up with Lincoln. Now, why would he meet with Lincoln? Because even though this guy was just a lowly private, he was the sort of the aide-de-camp for whatever general he worked under to take his correspondence. He writes in his diary that his beautiful penmanship had gotten the attention of those in high places at executive headquarters in Washington, D.C. That makes sense. These are going to high generals and ultimately to the commander-in-chief himself, Lincoln. Also, Lincoln has this fascination with magic, but that gets ahead of a little bit. I guess what I'm getting to is this. I highly suspect that it was, it was that first time in April of 64 that he was detached with his general at the time to go to D.C., probably in official capacity as a, as a correspondence writer and a clerk, that he was introduced to Lincoln because Lincoln had been seeing this beautiful penmanship. One thing would lead to another this guy had a high intellect. He was a great shot. Everybody spoke about how what a great shot he was. He was lithe in, lithe in that he could escape from things. I think he had a lot of the qualities that Abraham Lincoln was looking for. And Lincoln was very, very uh, into the spy services. We know about several of them. I mean, there's a great book by uh, Peter Soros about the scouting for Grant and Meade. I wish I'd have known about this book before I wrote mine. Because in that book, when he talks about those scouts, one of those scouts would be one of the three guys that would later attest to Harry Cook's diary at the end of his book. Anyway, I think at that point, he, he got this commission, but definitely by the second time he met, one of those two meetings, all within either the spring or summer of 1864, with his one or two meets with Lincoln. And this commission was a handwritten letter commissioning 
uh, Harry Cook as a brevet captain uh, make, and putting him in charge of a scouting uh, entity. And he was told to select six scouts to, to serve under him. Now, Paul, I'm sure you, you know, but for those who may not know, there's a distinction when you are breveted. A brevet rank is a temporary rank for the term of whatever mission you've been assigned. The classic example was uh, George Armstrong Custer, 10 years later, we all refer to him as General Custer. Well, he was breveted general at that time, but he had been knocked down earlier by Grant. And when they, when they led him back into the army, he was a lieutenant colonel by regular rank at the time of his death at the Battle of Little Bighorn, but he was the breveted general. So it's just a temporary rank. So, and his photograph on the cover of the book I have, and that's one of the many things given to me, that the photograph, if you look closely on his shoulder boards, you will clearly see captain's bars on his shoulder boards. And uh, that kind of goes to, to uh, showing his, his captainship, although being a, a brevet rank. So he's given this letter. And, you know, think about yourself. When you're 20 or 21 years old, to meet the president is a major thing. Middle of war, to be given a a commission by the president is an ultra thing. It's the greatest thing possible. You can imagine how proud this kid was to be, be commissioned as a scout for Lincoln. Well, I could see him, you know, carrying it with him and showing all his buddies over the campfire. Hey, man, here's my, you know, you're really, yeah, here it is, man. They're breveted by Abraham Lincoln, you know. I could see that, which takes us to the big event. I know your, a lot of your listeners are, fan, are students of the Civil War, but for those who aren't out there, Winchester, the third big push, attempted push by the, the Confederacy, the last attempt to, to break into Washington, D.C. via the town of Winchester in the north end of uh, the Shenandoah Valley. In this context, at this time, in the fall of 1864, Harry Cook, and, and there's also, as I pointed out earlier with that military uh, records, is working as a, clerk, a brigadier clerk detaches a brigadier clerk, October of 1864. In his diary, he says he's back at Winchester, which was the headquarters for Sheridan at that time frame. While he's there, suddenly guys start riding into town, say, hey man, the, the, the Confederacy has busted through our lines down at a place called Cedar Creek and they're rolling us up. And at that, Sheridan made his famous ride. He realized, oh my God, if they bust through here, it's a clean shot right to Washington, D.C. By Sheridan's own records, he's, he told some scouts and about 20 of them by his record to go with him. And they rode hell bent for leather southbound to, to stem the Confederacy breaking through. In the diary, Harry Cook talks about how he could not keep up with uh, Phil Sheridan. I guess Sheridan was this expert horseman. And because they couldn't keep up with him, by his own words, again, Cook's words, they decided to get out of the valley and try to make the best of it through the woods so they had a little bit of concealment because they were no longer with the security of numbers. They were on their own. To make matters worse, they were out of uniform. It's in this context on October 19th, toward the afternoon, that they get captured. Harry Cook and his six men get captured by Mosby's guerrillas. He doesn't say that Mosby was present. He says there were his guerrillas, some of his men. They are then, all of them are all robbed of everything they had of value, some of them being their clothes itself, but also their money. And in this case, for Harry Cook, his prized possession, his letter from Abraham Lincoln that he carried with him. 
and they kind of laughed at him. So they knock him around a bit. They march him all through the night. And then they march on the next day, the October 20th. I've done a lot of study trying to figure out where they went in this time, little hints along the way near Martinsburg and these different areas. But um, they come to a farm, uh, farmhouse and through the talking of between Mosby's gorillas and the guy that lives there, Cook realizes this is the father of one of the guys that is one of his captors. And they slap him around a bit. They slap Cook around and all the other guys and laugh them. They're going to be killed, et cetera, et cetera. And then later that night, they learn that they're waiting for another group of Mosby's men who are bringing in yet a different group of Union POWs. And collectively, they're all to be executed in the morning. Now, why would they do this? And I know, I know most of your, your people are, are aware of this, but in the, this is the worst time and place to be captured out of uniform. It was in the fall of 1864 in the Shenandoah Valley when a private war within a war was happening between General Custer and his cavalrymen of the North and Mosby and his Confederacy, his, his uh, guerrillas of the South. They had a war, a take no prisoner going on because um, one thing led to another, but some people were summarily executed. Some say by, by the North starting it off with uh, Custer killing a few guys. Other guys say, well, that was in return for what Mosby had done to some union men. Whatever happened there, they were both summarily executing the other guy's men whenever they were caught. So Cook realizes he's in deep trouble. So he and his men, total of seven guys, he and six men, are literally tied to trees with their backs right to the banks of the Potomac River. And the best I can make of this, again, it's somewhere southeasterly of Harper's Ferry. And they know they're going to be killed in the morning. There's an equal number or slightly more, I, I think there was a 12, I, I can't remember now, of the, of the Confederate men guarding them. But the reality was all of them were asleep except for one guard. As that guard himself began to sleep, Cook writes in his diary, and this is recounted in newspaper accounts, that he knew that he could escape because he was an escape artist. And I could see that because as an escape artist, there's techniques that you can employ while you're being tied in that can give you a little extra something to your advantage to later escape. So as the last guy falls drunk and falls asleep, Cook does in fact escape, but he's the leader of his men. So he's not going to abandon his men. He unties all of his men, but now they have the big question in front of them. Do they at nighttime swim across the mighty Potomac River? Anybody that's ever been there knows it's a real river. <laughs> it's not like out here in California where the river's just a few feet wide. It's a real river. But think about it. The alternative is you're going to be, you're going to die anyway. You're going to be executed in the morning. So three of his men, his men decide to go with him, Cook, and go and swim across the Potomac to get to Maryland. Three of his men said, We absolutely cannot swim. We got to escape the best we can on the Virginia side. So they attempt to. Cook and his three men, they go for it. Ironically, they do get across the Potomac River, but immediately after the river, right there, and you can find it on Google Earth Maps, there, there, to this day, there's still a canal that parallels the northern part of the Potomac immediately north of it. And unfortunately, in crossing that canal, one of his men drowns, just a heartbreaking shame. So Cook and two of his men make good and in, in relatively short order, they are reunited with Northern factions. In fact, one of them happens to be a cousin, a guy named Major Gallup, which is just, it shows you how intimate the war was then. 
He tells a story. They had been listed as AWOL. They had been listed as missing. He tells a story what happened. They're fed. They're given new horses, new uniforms. And two weeks later, he's given 30 men to recross and try to find what became of his other three comrades that, that tried to make good through the woods. Unfortunately, he would find them all executed. They were shot, they were mutilated, and they were hanging in trees. Harry Cook and his men cut them down. They buried them right there. And then they vow vengeance. And he goes on what I call the first vengeance ride. We know about the vengeance ride with uh, Wyatt Earp and his men later on in history. But uh, he, he is, he's sort of cryptic in his diary. But they first went back to that farmhouse where he knew the dad of one of the men that captured him had lived. And they burned that house to the ground. Well, good or bad, this kind of thing happened in the Civil War. So they burned it to the ground. Then he later reports in his diary that they'll never ever speak of, they all agreed to never speak of what all we did during the vengeance ride, but they did turn in horses and weaponry to their quartermaster. You can kind of read into that and figure, well, what, what became of the men that were once on the horses with the weapons? Well, anyway, so this did happen. But now back to the story of his letter. His letter had been stolen from him, the one from Abraham Lincoln. This young man, all he wanted was this letter. This was going to be his means to get some kind of employment. I mean, can you think of a better referral for a job? We fast forward several months uh, from 64 into 1865. He's working again uh, as a correspondent or a clerkship in Washington, D.C., or specifically Alexandria next to Washington, D.C. And then he decides he wants to go get another letter from Abraham Lincoln. He actually walks up to the White House and knocks on the door. Now, I'll say time out for a second. There was an era when a guy could walk up to the front door <laughs> of the White House. You know, uh, it was guarded. This is a civil war. It was guarded. But the war had just ended a few days earlier. He had met Abraham Lincoln at least twice, maybe even a third time. That's speculation. But they knew each other on a face-to-face -face, uh, level, even though he's just a lowly private with actual uh, rank a brevet scout by uh, a brevet captain by a brevet rank. And he's told on this particular day, April 14th of 1865, that Mr. Lincoln and his wife were down the street watching a play and that he'd have to go down the Ford's theater to meet up with Mr. Lincoln. And by the way, this time, Harry Cook is in uniform. Harry Cook walks the several blocks down the Ford's theater and by his own uh, writing of his diary, the play is already in. Uh, already going. It's been going about 20 minutes or so. Harry Cook doesn't want to disrupt the play. So when he opens up the door, and if you've ever been to Ford's Theater, it's a very small, small theater. Harry Cook opens up the door and stands at the, at the door at the very back of the last audience row of the theater to watch the play, basically wait for it to be over. A short time later, he writes in his diary that he hears a shot and he sees some guy jump to the ground from the president's box and yell something in Latin. Of course, we all know he yelled Sig Semper Tyrannus, such as the end of tyrants. And he takes off and, and he thought, uh, Cook writes at first, he thought all the audience thought that this was somehow part of the play. Now remember, until this night, there had never been a president assassinated. Everybody's guard was way down. In fact, they were celebrating because they had just won the war five days earlier at Appomattox. All of a sudden it dawned on everybody. And, he, and then he writes where Miss Keene, the star yells, my God, the president's been shot. You know, John Wilkes Booth was already had made good his escape. 
Well, as we all know from history and also in his diary, this is, I'm reading this, I'm reading this firsthand account. I mean, I couldn't believe I was reading a handwritten account of this, this occurrence, you know. In fact, right now, the hair on the back of my head is st standing up, just remembering this, but they carry Lincoln across to the Peterson boarding uh, school. All night long, Harry Cook wanted to get in to see the president, but everybody was kept out. You know, it's on record that Stanton even kicked out Mrs. Lincoln because she was becoming hysterical however cook never left he, he posted himself as one of the guards out front just to have something to do in uniform you know and he felt this personal affinity for this man lincoln on top of how everybody felt the next morning stanton came out and i guess took some uh, pity or empathy with uh, a young cook and actually invited cook in and cook writes in detail looking down upon the recently deceased face of Abraham Lincoln. And he wrote some, I have it verbatim, of course, in the book, but off the top of my head, it's something to the effect of, uh, for such a homely man, he's basically this beautiful person. And the master's word was lost. That was Cook's words. The master's word was lost. Just amazing reading this. I mean, I couldn't believe I was reading this in a handwritten little diary. Oh my God, you know. Can you believe my most recent Civil War relic acquisition was an original CDV of a member of the 3rd New Jersey? Their uniform was that of the Hussars, and they were so fancifully dressed that they were known as the Butterflies. Where does one find such an amazing piece of history? From our sponsor, the Excelsior Brigade, of course. They deal in the finest Civil War antiques and relics. Check them out. Link in the show notes. I mean, that is an amazing story, you know, I mean, <laughs> to think that someone had this experience in the Civil War. And yes. also you talk about the detached service, which starts to make a lot of sense because I've read other accounts of other spies, scouts that also were put on paper detached service, such as Lafayette yes. Baker and stuff. So that was pretty common, I think, considering yes. there was no, you know, CIA or FBI at right, the time. Right, right. So right. they would pull from the ranks. And also, I didn't want to interrupt you there, Paul, I'm sorry, but the name just flashed. I'm getting to be 60, so I'm starting to forget things. <laughs> the name I tried, I forgot earlier, was Sergeant Charles Phelps, P-H-E-L-P-S. He is one of the three men that signs his attestation to the end of the diary written by Harry Cook, attesting to the truthfulness of the diary. I have since searched, and by the way, Phelps is buried just a few feet from Harry Cook out here in Los Angeles. In the magic world, they would later tour together and give lectures together talking about their time as spies in the Civil War. Even though it took me 40 years, yes, folks, I admit it, 40 years to finally get around to writing this <laughs> into a book form. Um, I knew that when I wrote this, I would start learning stuff afterwards and I'd regret not learning it ahead of time. I mentioned earlier this other book, Scouting for Grant and Mead by Peter Soros. I don't know Peter Soros. That's, you know, I'm, I guess I'm giving him a free plug. I don't know the man, but it's interesting to me. I bought this book because it's scouting, right? In the Bureau of Military Intelligence, a BMI that was created during the Civil War, one of the men documented in, in the service of that, the BMI, and, get, and spoken well of in that book is lo and behold, Sergeant Charles Phelps. Uh, oh, here we go. Here's this tight network of all these spies working together. I also realized, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, you have an evolution of things. You know, you had 
Jesse scouts, but you know, John C. Fremont near the beginning of the war saw a need for having some secret agents, so to speak, of which Wild Bill Hickok would be a, a member of his secret agency. And then from that later on, you would have Sheridan's private scouts, Sheridan, the guy that Cook worked for. Sheridan would have his scouts. You'd have this BMI group. And all of them tended to like hand off the baton to the next. And some of the same people would go from one entity to the next, which makes complete sense because where are you going to get this experience base from? Where are you going to get people from that, that know how to do these things? So as all these entities grew, it makes total sense to me that you'd pull from the ranks of people that have done some of this. Who would be the representatives recommending people? They would be the high generals that have worked with these younger guys. And here's a guy, Harry Cook, who, because of his correspondence ability, had this inside niche to personally deal with all of these generals. In fact, I won't dwell on it. I'll just go over and I recommend people to, to read this part. It's really interesting. Way back near the beginning of his military career, Harry Cook, that is, when he worked under General Prentice, this, thank God, this note did not get lost. This letter exists and is re reproduced in my book of a beautiful handwritten letter from Harry Cook, you know, from private Harry Cook, a handwritten letter right to General Prentice. Now, time out for a second. Anybody that's ever served in the military, what nut of a private would have the audacity to write a letter directly to skipping all these cha this chain of command and go right to a general. Well, I agree. Unless you had a personal working, uh, personal uh, working relationship with this general and you were doing his correspondence for him anyway, every day. And in that letter that's reproduced, um, Harry Cook basically asked for a commission to be put in charge of a colored regiment that was about to be put together. And he's asking General Prentice, hey, I would like to do, be that guy. No, <laughs> Harry Cook did not get the gig, but he, you know, kudos to him for trying. And it also shows proof of his audacity, his, his will. He felt confident that this general might give him the go ahead on it. it. It's that kind of guy we're talking about that would later be given the go in this capacity of meeting Lincoln, performing for Lincoln, uh, beginning the good word to Lincoln about his credentials, and then, in, uh, in my in my theory, being made a uh, scout. And uh, so, to me, it makes perfectly sense. Summer is here. It's campaign season. Time to go on the march. Time to drag the wife, the girlfriend, kids kicking and screaming down one of those Civil War trails. Instead of a Caribbean island, do something local. They may be pouting now. But once you get them out of the city and see the tranquility of these trails seeped in history, I'm sure you'll win them over. Learn more using the link in the show notes. So basically gathering from what you're telling me about, you know, this, the story, it seems to me the story of intelligence in the Civil War, rather than trying to follow a single organization, you're following the people, the characters. Yes. Uh, I think the story of intelligence in the Civil War is more yes. of the, the, the players, if you Yes, yes. And a lot of people have said to me, uh, why would he put this young private in charge of a scouting entity? Uh, and that's a, that's a good question. I mean, that's, I can see why they asked that. But I would have to say this, you know, when you really study it, and I do talk about this in the book, I have a rather large library behind me of both magic history as well as Civil War history. Magicians have a long history 
of landing leadership roles in intelligence entities. I know that's really hard to believe. Well, it's it's not hard to believe. Uh, Milky or Wilkie, the very first uh, guy ever in charge of the newly created Secret Service, was himself a magician. John Mulholland was was drafted and disappeared for 20 years by the CIA. We we didn't know he was with the CIA until 20 years later. But John Mulholland, a famous magician in America during the 40s and 50s, disappeared at the start of the Cold War, just disappeared. 20 years later, comes back on the scene and come to find out one of the first books ever written for the CIA on, on doing covert operations like how to secretly poison your opponent <laughs> using what's basically a magic hollow coin with a pill uh, was written by John Mulholland. John Maskelyne, famous British magician, is given credit for during World War II making the city of Alexandria, Egypt disappear nightly. And when I say disappear nightly, I say it tongue in cheek, but he had to create the illusion of the real city of Alexandria over here being out in the water over here at night so the Germans would mistakenly bomb the wrong target every night. So Magicians have, and of course, Harry Houdini, uh, the famous Kalush book, talks about Houdini himself being a secret spy for the British during World War I. So there's a long history. I mean, after all, in the, in the world of intelligence and espionage and in the world of magic, they both have a major similarity in that they are both professional deceivers who have to have the ability to get in and out of locked places and have to have the ability to surreptitiously obtain information. A mind reading act, how does that guy know your, your social security number? Well, I'm not going to say, but he surreptitiously figured out a way, didn't he, to get that information? Or how did that guy uh, get through that safe to that locked in? Well, he's an escape artist. He knows how to pick locks. So, so in retrospect, it's kind of a no-brainer why magicians seem to always land their, a spot in, in the world of intelligence. So to me, it makes complete sense. And he had all these generals personally recommending him right to the president on a personal basis. Lincoln doesn't know these guys from Adam. He has to give a lot of faith in his generals to recommend him people for these, these services. So to me, it makes complete sense. I totally get how he found himself in this situation. And I would say this also, Paul, now, I'm not calling for this because, again, it's too personal to the family all these generations later. But someday, if there's ever enough interest in this about, you know, Lincoln Scouts of 1863, well, you know, I've had a lot of Civil War guys tell me, I've never heard of this entity. I get that. I guess they were pretty successful then. And my point is this. In my book, maybe you've seen it yourself, even though these are old photos of Harry Cook taken in his elderly years, in, in the 19-teens and the 1920s. At the end of his life, Harry Cook would, would do a lot of his magic shows and his speeches while wearing his Civil War uniform with all of his medals. Do you know that I had that, that scrapbook for over 20 years before the advent of computers and the internet, which gave me the ability to zoom in on these photos and my God, for 20 years, right in front of me, I had a photo of, of Harry Cook with a medal. When you zoom it way in, and I have reproduced that in the book, you realize one of the medals on his chest says Lincoln Scouts 1863. I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry about that. But what I was going to say is Harry Cook is buried out here at Rosedale Cemetery in Los Angeles. He was a Mason later on in life. He's buried with his wife. By the way, his 
other secret agent buddy, Charles Phelps, is just a couple feet up the way. I asked Clara Louise Wassum, who maintained all this stuff. He had, she had all these uh, documents and photos and, and, and uh, diaries and things. I asked her, hey, by the way, where's your dad's uniform? And she thought, now remember, she was 85 at the time I'm asking her. I'm asking her something that happened. Her dad died way back in 1924. And she's thinking, oh, she goes, I don't really recall. And then it dawned on me, I asked her, was he by chance buried in his uniform? And truthfully, she could not remember. So I, I, I wished she could have told me that, but she couldn't remember. And also, where is the medal? Well, if you look in that, that book I, I wrote, you'll see a photograph taken of Harry Cook. It's a, it's a very poor reproduction because the photo itself in that era was put into newspaper form. And that newspaper clipping is in the scrapbook that I reproduced. So that, that reproduction shows a very elderly 80-year-old Harry Cook in his uniform with all his medals, including the Lincoln Scout Medal, taken at his very last performance, which would turn out to be only one month before he passed away. My opinion is Harry Cook, like many war veterans, many war veterans, was probably buried in his full uniform. And since we have a photo that shows that very medal on that uniform only one month before he passed away, there's a high probability that someday, if, if the family were to want to, and I'm not going to pressure them by any means, if that body were to ever be exhumed, one of the greatest secrets of the Civil War might be found in physical evidence, evidentiary form, with that little medal that says Lincoln Scouts of 1863 penned to his chest. I really believe that. Speaking about Civil War badges, our sponsor, the Badge Maker, produces the best reproductions on the market. These are perfect for display, reenacting, or even as educational tools. He even does custom jobs. So perhaps you can get a Lincoln Scouts badge. Link will be in the show notes. So anyway, I realized this even as a young kid then. And by the way, why, why the book now all these years later? Well, life went, went on. I became a flying highway patrolman. I had a wife and kids. I, I raised them. And one thing led to another, and I procrastinated, procrastinated. But I'll say now, I'm glad I procrastinated in retrospect because the wealth of information and data that has come into being in the last 40 years to supplement what I have makes for a far greater book today than I could have ever produced 40 years ago. So, because now there's a lot, you know this? I have a collection now at my house of several books that, are, that have little snippets about Harry Cook. In fact, one came out last year by none other than the magician David Copperfield, who gives about three pages of credit to this guy named Harry Cook, who was witness to Abraham Lincoln being assassinated. And then there's another one by Bill Kalusha by Houdini, who gives witness to Harry Cook, on and on. But how about this, Paul? How about entering a current pop culture? Now, what I mean by that is, and Harry, I'm going to recommend another book, and I don't know this guy for Adam, so bear with me. I was in Barnes & Noble about three or four years ago, and I rarely read fictional novels. In fact, I almost never do. But lo and behold, there's a novel simply entitled The Escape Artist by Brad Meltzer. Now, Brad Meltzer is a pretty well-respected novelist. He does historical documentaries, and I'd heard the name, but didn't, I don't know the guy. I still don't know the guy. But I thought, hey, that's kind of interesting. So I bought this novel, and not even being a guy who reads novels, I read this book. Well, I'm not going to give it away. The storyline takes place in the present era, but it harkens back 
to the Civil War. And lo and behold, if Horatio Cook doesn't have a starring role in this book, and it's a novel. <laughs> so, so after all these years, I feel good about that because for Clara Louise Wasson's sake, she's long gone, but for her sake, the story of her, her dad is finally beginning to make headway into uh, the current generation of people that are into history, Civil War, Lincoln, magic history. He's just starting to, to get some long, long due recognition for this service. And we didn't even touch on later on him meeting and training Houdini, but maybe that'll be another day. <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say, absolutely. I, I think that it's great because this is, you know, it seems to be, it is an untold civil war. That's what we, or a story that yes. we like to talk about, of course, right? Yes. And yes. Um, one thing I think is interesting is that it took so many years to get this information, but it makes sense because if you're a spy or a scout, you're yes. not going to be writing that much. You're not supposed to right. put that much out there. You know, you just leave those little clues, detached service, you know? Yes. And so yes. eventually, slowly with your efforts, we're able to put all of this together. So a lot of that does make sense. But like you mentioned, I mean, I don't want to take too much of your time, but <laughs> if it is possible, I'd like to ask a little bit about the fake spiritualism. Oh, yeah. Um, because this is yeah. an interesting role he had after the war, right? Yeah, I'll be happy to, to fact that. Uh, well, I can't really show you here, but you can see it in the book there. And people that uh, buy the books, I'm like, I'm touting it again, but I'll just come out and say it. I've reproduced all his posters. You'll see that, yes, as we know, the Civil War ended in 1865. He writes in his diary, he went back to Iowa. He kind of putzed around for about a year, but he became bored. I mean, I can see that. He had an exciting life and now he's doing the farm work again. So he decides to take his show on the road in, in 1866 for the first two years of doing a straight magic show, linking rings and all that. And yes, I have found his actual linking rings apparatus. They're in a secret hiding place right now in Hollywood in the secret underground labyrinth of the Society of American Magicians and Museum by some guy named Harry Cook. And they didn't even know who they had. <laughs> but uh, anyway... And I had the photo of him with those linking rings. Uh, anyway, so he does a straight magic act for two years. But in 1868, now the first golden era, as they call it, of the age of spiritualism is in high gear. Later on, it'd have a resurgence in, in World War I. But in Civil War, think about all the people that were killed on both sides of the, the Mason-Dixon line. All these widows and mothers left, left home with uh, the man is dead. And a lot of them naturally uh, started, you know, out of just uh, sheer brokenheartedness, uh, were just hoping for grasping at straws. And in that context, America had a just an explosion of these charlatans, of these fraudulent mediums that put together these acts. And we've all seen the classic, you know, the tambourines that ring and the floating bells. And, and, the, and in that era, slates, you know, school kids had these little chalkboard slates and a popular thing was to write a question in chalk on a slate sandwich the two slates together ask the, the great beyond to answer it lo and behold the lights would come back on and there'd be some cryptic message written on the slate those kinds of things well harry cook saw this the davenport brothers were very famous in that era but there were countless others and as a magician he immediately saw through it that hey these guys are just using magic tricks and, and the Davenport brothers were smart because they incorporated being tied up. They were fiercely tied up to supposedly prevent them from being able to ring the bells and themselves. But Harry Cook realized, wait a minute, 
they figured out a way to escape, do all their manifestations. And then before the lights came back on, they'd be quickly tied up again, giving the illusion that some spirit had come and answered. So Harry Cook, not Houdini, who would do the same thing a whole generation later, but Harry Cook put together, and I, I'm quite into magic history. I, I can find no other magician that had an earlier show of what, and I'm reading a poster to you right now. The Wonder Workers Professor Cook presents Spiritualism Outdone. He called his act Spiritualism Outdone. He would do his magic act, but then he'd follow it with doing a, a phony seance. And he would, he would show how he could get in and out of handcuffs, get in and out of rope ties, secretly write these messages. Or he could read people's minds. He could do all these things, but through magicians' secrets rather than really contacting a, a spirit. So he, he did his spirit debunking show. And he toured with that spirit debunking show for the entire latter half of the 19th century. That was his, that's how Harry Cook would spend the rest of his life making money, doing his magic show and doing his spirit debunking show. But it almost cost him his life because in 1873, and this would happen, a similar thing would happen to Houdini in the 1920s. But in 1873, how do I say this? When you challenge the norm, what people are accepting as truth, and you're basically spitting in their face and now you guys are, it's a bunch of bull and here's the tricks that you're doing. And by the way, you're conning people out of hard earned money at the same time. Well, you know what? You're going to tick off a lot of people that are on that other side of the fence, either because they personally believe it as a religion or maybe because they are in on making some of the money and you're taking away money from the mob. You know, you're going to make enemies as much as you make friends. In 1873, and I have the article in my book, and I did some modern investigative work uh, looking at court documents. That year, a man named John Weaver was distributing something disparaging in written form about Harry Cook. This, this happened in Bellevue, Ohio. Now, now, I tried desperately to get my hands on the verbiage of the actual court case to see what was he saying about Harry Cook. So I'll tell you right now, I don't have an answer. I speculate, just like Houdini would have problems later on, that somebody that was probably on the opposite side of the fence that Harry was in, on the spiritualism question was upset with Harry Cook spoiling everything. They got into an argument in front of a little storefront that Harry Cook was operating at the time, a little jewelry store. They got into a physical altercation. And at some point, John Weaver pulled out a gun put it right up against the abdomen of Harry Cook and shot Harry Cook point blank on the right side of his abdomen. Even today, that could be lethal, but in, in that era, the fact that Harry Cook survived that is incredible. But Harry Cook survived it. They did arrest John Weaver, and the court documents show that he was found guilty, that is, John Weaver was, but he was only sentenced to one year. I mean, can you believe that? One, one year he did in prison, I, I guess because they... It, they took a little bit of pity on John Weaver's side because uh, maybe Harry Cook, maybe he had a weaker case. Maybe he was kind of provoking. We will never know. But John Weaver did one year in prison. And to this very day, court uh, defense attorneys at least have used, I found about two dozen times that Ohio versus John Weaver is used as a defense mechanism to this day to try to give a defendant accused of a murder a little bit of leeway for having uh, having been provoked. Do you, you see what I'm saying?
anyway, so that that's another thing that happened to Erica. The guy was shot point blank and he survived, you know? This guy so, has an amazing life where he seems to be everywhere all at once, you know, yes. influencing all sorts of moving parts. I mean, is this the era he meets Houdini or how does that work? No. Now, to put it in context, Harry Cook was born in 1844. Eric Weiss, the real name of Harry Houdini, was born 1874. So Harry Cook was, was 30 years senior to, to Houdini, a whole generation. Okay, about the turn of the century, specifically in 1907, probably for health reasons, Harry Cook moves from Warsaw, Illinois at that point with his family uh, out to Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles heyday was the first two decades of the 20th century. You know, uh, the farming culture and then the silent film era. That was the heyday of Southern California, Los Angeles. All right, so he moves out here to LA and people would come out here because the weather was supposedly good for their health, that kind of thing. So he's out here. He quickly, now he's becoming an elderly man. He quickly, he and Harry Keller, the guy I talked about earlier that was Frank L. Baum's inspiration for The Wizard of Oz, they end up living just a couple miles from each other and together they create the LASM, Los Angeles Society of Magicians, which was like a little club, a guild for local magicians. And they would meet at this uh, Mason's Lodge of which Harry Cook at about the same time became a Mason. Uh, and I have a photo of him at his little Mason's uh, uh, fez and his linking rings. He'd perform in this, in this fez thing for quite a while. Anyway, so they have this, this, this magic guild and a lot of the popular magicians of the vaudevillian era that were Southern California based, the most famous other than Keller being Alexander, the man who knows, look that up on online to see the, what I'm talking about, Alexander, the man who knows. Anyway, in this context, they would meet Houdini. Now they created the guild, I think in 1917. Now we're talking, we're getting into the silent film era. About two years later is the best I can make at least by 1919, he met Houdini, perhaps earlier, but definitely by 1919, because Houdini, who had his primary residence in New York City, also had a rented residence on Mulholland, uh, excuse me, Laurel, Laurel Canyon in the Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles. Houdini would tour, uh, well, the whole world, but North America once a year. Whenever he came out West, he would meet up with Harry Cook. They probably met at the LASM meetings. Some of those meetings took place in Harry Cook's house. Most of them took place at this uh, Mason's Law this, on Wilshire Boulevard. In 1919, Harry, Harry Houdini, everybody's named Harry, Harry Houdini, Harry Keller, Harry Cook. If you were a magician in that era, you had to be named Harry. Anyway, so, so Houdini made a very famous movie called The Grim Game. And in that Grim Game, he's trying to do an air-to-air -air transfer from one biplane to another biplane, Harry, Harry Houdini, that is. He was like the first Indiana Jones superhero, but he actually did his stunts. And in this, in this movie, there was an accidental unplanned midair collision between the two planes and the camera guy kept rolling and Houdini miraculously lived. How did Houdini live? Because that was the only stunt that he didn't perform. He had a broken wrist at the time of filming. He had a stuntman doing his stunt for him and the stuntman died where, where Houdini would have died. But anyway, during that time frame. Houdini was a guest of honor at the LASM's annual meeting. At least by that point, Houdini and, and, and Harry Cook became friends, maybe earlier, but definitely by that time. Because from that time forward, there are several photos. Some of them are in my book again. Harry Houdini and Harry Cook, the photos are taken on the front porch of Harry Cook's Los Angeles home. And in one of the photos, 
Harry Houdini's holding a little baby. That baby is Donald Wassum, Clara Louise Wassum's son, who would later die in World War II. Harry Houdini wrote many books, but his most famous book by far is A Magician Among the Spirits, which was, um, uh, it came out in 1924. He gave a first edition copy of that book to, and he signed it to Harry Cook, signed it, Harry Houdini. And he also, Harry Houdini, mentions Harry Cook twice in that book for teaching him some of the means of how the fake spirit uh, spiritualists pull off their means and how he would beat them. Because at this point in the World War I era, now Houdini is taken on all of the fake spiritualists. So he wrote this book. He credited Cook. Cook, not wanting to be outdone, manufactures this beautiful paddle, a combination paddle with a with a wooden case for it, which I am now in possession of. It's in the book, also the photo, because Harry Cook wanted to not be outdone. He wanted to have something to give to Houdini the following year, in 1925, when Houdini would come back. But unfortunately, that very year, 1924, is the year that Cook would die. That lock would pass to his daughter, who wanted to give it to her son, but he died. So she instead gave it to me, and I have it to this day. And it has Harry Cook's name stamped on, on the padlock. Anyway, that's his, his nexus with Houdini. Want to learn more about the story behind this very podcast? Well, I am featured in a Q&A segment in the latest edition of Military Images magazine. Get your copy today from the link in the show notes and get the inside scoop. I don't like talking about myself. This might be the only chance to learn my few secrets. That's an amazing story. And I think with Cook wanting to give that to Houdini, but that lock eventually going to another escape artist, I think you would be very happy about that. Well, I, I hope so. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, so. absolutely. There's so much going on here. I love this story. <laughs> you know, I, I love it. I really do. Uh, I do so, too. so let me ask you how, if you had to tell people who are listening to this, how does knowing Cook's story better help us understand the civil war, bringing it back to that conflict? Okay. I, I'd say a couple things on that. First of all, what a personal, intimate war that was. I mean, in Harry Cook's own story, after his big escape, one of the guys he runs into when he, when he escapes back to the Union side is his own cousin, a guy named Major Gallup. Now, what are the odds of that? Not as outlandishly as one might think, because it was a personal brother against brother war going on here, literally fought in some people's backyards. So it was a very personal thing. Another thing about the Civil War, you know, today, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm just saying a statement. Today in the military, or, or frankly, any type of federal bureaucracy, there's going to be layers and layers of bureaucracy that you would have to go through. Uh, you know, you're not just going to pull somebody off the street and say, here, you're a spy. You know, you're, you're going to go to uh, the Quantico, West Virginia, or Quantico, Virginia, rather, you're going to learn, you're going to join the CIA, whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm simply saying facts. But if there was an era there was an era where a man who was in fact a Renaissance man, who, who just kind of had it all, who could just through sheer force of his, of his character and abilities could, could rise from obscurity to the very top echelons of, in this case, military intelligence services and find himself shaking hands with Abraham Lincoln and going deep undercover behind enemy lines trying to get intelligence about the, the Confederate forces and report back, 
it, it just shows me that yes, we're in a different era today, but there was a time in the Civil War when things were much more personal, when things were way more intimate, good or bad, at least the man then had a realistic chance of making something for himself based on his own merits. You know, I think that's, that's an admirable era, an admirable time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, talking about personal, able to go see Lincoln knock on his door, right? I yeah. mean, you can't do that to the White House today. <laughs> right. So, you know, so yeah, a things were definitely different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, and yeah. to see someone like Cook rise up just because, you know, he was dedicated to it. He yes. knew what he had to do and he worked hard for it. And that's yes. something really amazing. I have to ask this as well, though. How does your experience as an escape artist, or even maybe your experience in law enforcement, did any of that help you understand Cook's story a little bit more? I would say yes, in a couple of different ways. You know, first of all, the, the, the big escape of his life, the one that literally saved his life and his comrades when they were tied up with their backs to the Potomac. I know for a fact firsthand that, because I, I've done this all my life, longer than even being in law enforcement, there are techniques that one can utilize while being tied up with some knowledge and some skill and a little bit of luck too, that you can put a lot of things in your favor. So the fact that he escaped from these rope ties at night, especially when the penalty for failure was literally gonna be death in the morning, I absolutely see how he absolutely could have pulled that off. I definitely can see that that being a, a real thing. Also, him having these attributes that would enable him to find himself in positions you know, I don't mention in my book, but uh, I kind of relate to Harry Cook on many different levels. You know, one, uh, for the Highway Patrol, I was assigned to a detail called PSD, Protective Services Detail, where I too protected presidents, I, starting with uh, Ronald Reagan, all the way forward with every president up to um, Trump, up to Trump, because I retired a couple of years ago. Every president with one exception, I didn't have any dealings with Clinton, but with, with uh, Ronald Reagan and all those guys, I too found myself in a position where I was able to be in a position to meet these guys, shake their hands and, and offer some protection. First, I did it on the ground in motorcade fashion, then later in the air. But what I'm saying is, I'm just a regular guy too. I mean, I, but if you have some talents in some ways, somehow I am a firm believer that it, whatever your talents are and attributes in life, if you, if you just persevere, if you just try, if you just don't give up, so I really believe in this philosophy and I relate it to Harry Cook. What is the definition of success? To me, it is two things. It's when preparation meets opportunity. You can prepare the daylights out of your life, but if you're never given the opportunity, you're a failure. Alternatively, you can be given the opportunity, but if opportunity knocks and you're not prepared, you're a failure. But but if you prepare, 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 someday opportunity will knock. And at that intersection, and definitely in Harry Cook's life, it, it came to pass. When the intersection of opportunity and preparation meets, you succeed in whatever your endeavors are. And I think in the case, uh, certainly in my own life, but, but talking about Harry Cook, I think Harry Cook definitely is one of those guys who just had these different attributes he had a force of character about him. He was very P.T. Barnum-like. He, you know, I mean, if you're a showman, you kind of got to be. You know, you have, you have to, you're selling yourself. Um, in fact, you can see him. I don't want to get sidetracked. I know I have a habit of doing that, but I, I think that's how he succeeded to, to close that out. You can see, you can watch 
a silent film of Harry Cook performing magic. It's only not even a full minute. It might be a minute. I saw it on an A&E um, presentation on the, it's called The Art of Magic. It's a two-part show. And it goes way back in time. And there's a little bit of silent footage, black and white silent footage. And they're really talking about Harry Keller. But standing next to Harry Keller is this other older gentleman with a white goatee and a mustache, kind of looks like Colonel Sanders, you know, and lo and behold, it's, it's Harry Cook. So there is actual footage of our hero here moving and, and well, he's talking, but you can't hear him in silent film, but, but performing his magic, this man really truly existed, you know, and um, I, I do, I do think that sheer, through his sheer force of persona that today he's coming back to life in the form of these, these, the book, and right now this, this podcast, and, and by the way, this fall, a museum out here, La Quinta Museum, which is in the desert, by the famous Coachella concerts that they have out there, is, is featuring my book, and, and their, their entire exhibit this fall is on Horatio Cook. So Harry Cook, it took him a long time, but all these years later, this man is finally getting his due for his little contribution in his efforts, uh, him serving his country, you know, so, you know, fighting for the North in the Civil War, you know, so absolutely, it's great to get this untold Civil War story out there, you know, finally, this is well, this you. is great stuff. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the story about, uh, you know, doing the presidential detail. Oh, okay. And uh, I, I thought back because I also did uh, a Trump detail one time. Oh, and there, uh, there I was great. standing in the corner. And on the block next to me was the Secret Service. Yes. And the Secret Service guy looked at me and he said, you know, in a couple of years, you can put in an application and, you know, you could come to the Secret Service. And I yeah. thought, and I can stand on the corner waiting for the president just like now. Oh, well, I guess, <laughs> so, never mind. So you're good. You know. Thanks, I get you. <laughs> but, um, but going back, where can people purchase your book? How can they get access to your stuff? Uh, oh, yes. Thank you. Okay. Well, first and foremost, uh, it, it seems most of them are selling directly from Amazon. So if you go to Amazon books and you simply uh, type in Lincoln Scouts and, and uh, maybe put Harry Cook or, or Mark Cannon or just Cannon. Anyway, Horatio Cook and the name of the, the it's a long title, but it's Lincoln Scout, the Diary of Horatio Cook, Soldier, Spy, Escape Artist by M.R. Cannon. That's me. And, uh, Anyway, that's number one. The, the second way is I have a website, my old magic website, which is canonsgreatescapes.com. And if you go up there, I've long since closed, I, in, in another life, <laughs> I used to be in a, in a, a consultant uh, for a lot of today's uh, magicians making their escape artistry equipment. I still do work for some of them, but that's just kind of privately. But uh, if you go onto that website, you'll see a button there where you can click on this book again, and it also can lead you to uh, purchasing the book. So Amazon Books or my website, canonsgreatescapes.com. Well, thank you very much. I'm definitely going to put links in the description and the show notes so people oh, can you. get access to that. Thank Great. you so much for coming on the show. And we're going to have to do this again. All right, Paul. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening while you lay out on the beach, sipping on iced coffee, pistol whipping a rebel, taking a bead on a Yankee officer, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I want to thank all my Patreon patrons for helping me keep this dream alive and growing. 
And just a reminder, you are all automatically entered to our raffle. You'll be in the running to win a copy of A Rebellious Woman by Claire Griffin and a Confederate War Bond note. Not a patron? Sign up using the link in the show notes so you can be in the running as well. Well, bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.